Climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name's Tim Perilla. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at Link Squares, and uh, today we're going to talk about how legal and finance can work together. Uh, our guest today is uh, Eric Dutcher, who's the CFO at MBO Partners, and I'll let Eric introduce himself in just a minute here. But as always, we have Alyssa Verzino here uh, as well. So, Eric, uh, before we get into a little bit of your background, we ask every guest at the outset, what is your pre-flight ritual? Well, um, we actually started traveling uh, several years ago with our kids and the friends of our kids. And so my pre-flight ritual is usually kind of rounding up and making sure that we have all the kids and most importantly, that they have their uh, identification because we have had at least one really interesting moment where a passport was lost in the airport uh, right before we were supposed to take off and found just in time. So that's my pre-fright ritual. That's that's panic-inducing right there. <laughs> I can't it even imagine. A, it takes a special level of patience for sure. <laughs> So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, quick bio. Uh, you know, I know we were just talking before we, uh, before we started, uh, started here, uh, you're in Texas, but would love to hear a little bit about your journey and uh, you know, career-wise and personally, where you, uh, how you ended up where you are today. Sure, so um, I'm currently the CFO of MBO Partners, where we um, enable independence and enterprises to work together. We are the largest provider, um, uh, technology provider for doing that connection for high-end independence. Um, I'm located in Dallas, Texas, and um, I guess a little fun fact, most of the company's probably sick of hearing me say it, but uh, I'm an open group ultra endurance obstacle course racer. So. What that means is I like to wake up early in the morning and go play in the mud. And sometimes nice. I do that for 24 hours and over 40 miles. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. That's like a Spartan race on steroids, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's pretty wild. How long have you been doing that? How'd you get into it? Uh, I've been doing it about uh, seven years, 10 years, maybe at this point. Um, and I just, I tried one, one time with my wife and um, just that feeling of getting small accomplishments leading to a big accomplishment at the end was highly motivating and it provides a great metaphor for life. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. Tell me a little bit about your career path. My first passion is actually consumer behavior, which you may not actually hear a CFO say that they love marketing, but um, especially since marketing always feels a pressure from the CFO uh, typically. But um, when I graduated, I found finance, you know, really natural. And so I gravitated towards it and um, I've always been strategic and, and versatile. So I, typically join a company and then gravitate to whatever the um, greatest area of need is. 
Um, some of the most fun I had was, um, you know, reinventing the business for MoneyGram International, running U.S. and Canada for them. Nice. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think my most natural fit really is in the CFO chair, um, bringing those, you know, disruptive insights, building teams, and, um, you know, preparing companies to recapitalize. It sounds like you've got a pretty good background from like a data and analytics perspective um, to, to be able to sort of cross the cross those two lines in a meaningful way, provide those insights. How did you start to develop that muscle? Um, I, I think it was really around just learning what questions to ask and and to pursue them in a manner where um, you know, everything doesn't have to be completely perfect. I think we had one instance at one point where somebody said, well, I can't tell you how many consumers I had. And this was at, at MoneyGram at the time. And I said, well, you know, don't we have to look from a compliance perspective? Don't we have to identify? And, you know, there was this big argument about, well, you know, you have to over aggregate from a compliance perspective. And I said, okay, so what is the chance that one person is actually multiple people? They said, right. well, okay, it's, Three percent. All right. Well, so you just told me that we've got ninety-seven percent certainty on our consumer metrics, which is amazing. So I think it's really just yeah. having a, a posture of curiosity and then knowing, you know, the level of importance that you need to on whatever particular data set you're working in. That makes a ton of sense. And I know one of the phrases that we throw around here, Lynx wears a lot, is "Don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough," right? And, um, and, and that's something that I think a lot of, uh, a lot of folks, particularly with, with deeper analytical backgrounds, uh, can get tripped up on. Yeah, you can, you can obviously go chase perfect for a really long time, but, um, at the end of the day, you know, what you need is good enough. Yeah, exactly. And oftentimes what you find are questions that maybe, maybe would call for perfection, but they're questions where answers uh, just aren't perfect, right? They're not phrased in a way where the answer could be a perfect uh, a perfect solution. Business tends to be a little more complicated than that. Let's, t let's change the focus a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about um, uh, the legal team and the finance team and how to best work together. And maybe we can break this down into, uh, you know, into a couple of different uh, a couple of different types of scenarios. Maybe there's scenario one that's like just day in and day out. Then there's scenario two, maybe there's some larger finance initiative. And then scenario three, maybe there's a larger uh, corporate initiative, like maybe M&A activity or something like that. Yeah, I think um, day in and day out, uh, I think it's really when you think about um, the areas of business that legal and finance overlap, there's quite a bit. And I would almost say that there's probably more things that overlap than things that don't overlap. So, right. you know, if you look day to day, whether you're looking at areas of procurement or new business signings, um, contract management, risk mitigation, um, I think all of those elements, there's a certain level of finance activity and a certain level of legal activity. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about data already, but really when you get into information curation and drawing insights, I actually believe that 
that's one of the areas that, that legal and finance can can partner even more just because you know there are legal constructs and legal restrictions around what you can do with the data or what you can do with an insight once you've gathered it um, and you know if you ultimately can't do something with data legally then you know, go chasing that insight probably isn't as valuable and you're better off redirect those resources elsewhere. And how big, how big is your legal team at MBO Partners? Uh, we're pretty small shop. So we've got uh, about three people in there. Um, and how big, how big is your finance team? Uh, so we split finance operations and um, the rest of finance. So, um, the rest of finance, which is kind of under the, the CFO purview, is around 12 people. Wow. All right. That's that's a great size team. And how many how many people sort of organization wide are you? Uh, organization wide, we're around 220 to 230 people. So, um, you know, part of our 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 headcount may seem a little bit larger than others. Um, we're we're a blend of onshore and offshore resources, and so. Um, and we managed to increase our capacity by doing that. But I also have, um, I use our MBO model um, that we provide for clients within finance as well. So um, I have a bunch of independents that I can call up for various activities that are really specialists in areas where I may not be able to hire a full-time person. There's nothing quite like using your own product in your, uh, in your own company, right? <laughs> exactly. It feels great. Yeah, it does. Yeah, we're 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 the same way here at Link Squares. Our our legal team is uh, is three members right now, uh, and we've got we've got about four hundred people uh, today, maybe a little over four hundred people, and our finance team is about the same size as as yours too, which is uh, which is great. And it's um you know it's it's interesting to uh, to think about the think about the size of the department versus the uh, versus the size of the broader organization. I know a lot of people like to sort of organize their departments around like, all right, for every 10, 15, 20, pick whatever number of overall employees, I'm going to need another head. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's the right way to go. And sometimes it's not. Um, how have you thought about growth for your team? Um, since since you whether it's an MBO or, or earlier companies? Yeah, it's, it's something I think about a fair amount because when you look at finance versus some of the other organizations, there's not really a metric that you can point to that says, like you were saying, hey, if we've got X number of transactions, we need Y number of people to complete them. Um, so um, I'm typically looking at, uh, I come from an outsourcing background. so. I've always focused in on how do I optimize the resources I have, um, and, the, and I look at the dollar base, and then how can I most uh, effectively apply that dollar base. So um, a lot of what I do is when I talk to an individual, I see what their broader skill set is, and you know if I can leverage one person for two different things, then that seems to be a better answer than, than doing for one. Um, and then what you kind of do is you look at what the strategic priorities are of the company and uh, adjust your resources according to that. 
Um, and then I, I think, I don't know that I know that there's a per perfect number based on revenue or departments, um, but you have to be kind of clear about what you can and can't do. And it's very easy for the organization to create the need for additional finance people by creating additional complexities. Like I want to see extra subdivisions of this particular set of numbers, you know, that isn't necessarily coded into the GL. So you, you kind of have to leverage your technology and people wisely in order to be most efficient. Yeah, that's that makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. How are you working with your legal team today? What are some of the things that you're most commonly interacting uh, with the legal team on? Um, really, just on um, you know partnering on uh, initiatives that um, have an element of, of finance and legal together. As you can imagine, in any sort of uh, litigation, there there tends to be a partnership because finance is typically a you know, data input into that as well as legal becomes a data input into, you know, do we need to accrue for something? Um, not that we have a lot of litigation in the company, but, you know, it's something that, that you've got to prepare for. Um, you know, new business signings, really talking through what are the key terms from a financial perspective? Um, how do things relate to um, banking agreements that we have? Um, how does it relate to talent activity? Is this, you know, what is the financial profitability of this customer? And based on that financial profitability, we might be more lenient on one of the legal terms or not. So um, I, I think when you go through the, the list of areas, there's uh, very few areas that or weeks or days that go by that I don't touch base with our legal department about something. And is your is your legal leadership also a C-level or are they uh, the VP, SVP? Uh, we have a, a chief administrative officer um, in which legal fits. Um, okay. So yeah, they're, they're involved with all of our uh, senior leadership team meetings and, um, you know, have good conversations around um, where legal and finance can partner together. What the other executives expect of the legal function has changed over the years. And, you know, I'd be interested in understanding from you, particularly when you're sitting in those executive meetings or the senior leadership meetings and your your lawyers or lead lawyer uh, is in that meeting. What contribution are you looking for? How are you saying like, yes, that lawyer is a good fit and should be in this meeting? Um, and maybe where, what are some areas of improvement, not specifically, of course, about your current lawyers, but just generally lawyers you've worked with in the past in that capacity. What, what are some areas of improvement that you've seen that, uh, that lawyers could take? I would say, first, I always look at um, lawyers and, and people in the legal department being um, strategic advisors. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, highly skilled um, people that either have specialized knowledge base or uh, maybe it's a more generalized knowledge base that then uh, knows when to bring in specialists. Um, so I typically look to, um, you know, legal as an area of expertise to bring in 
earlier in conversations, and I think maybe that's part of the change that, that you're feeling is, you know, I think maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, legal would kind of be the last organization to touch, you know, whether it be a new product development or, um, you know, something that, that the organization was building from a technology perspective. And I think more and more we're seeing the legal team on the front end of the conversations. And I think that's a good thing because, you know, the early we can, earlier we can understand the, the legal ramifications of something that we're going to do later downstream or, or a particular attribute or a tech build that we want to do, um, then we're going to be able to, you know, prioritize or, you know, adjust something early on that otherwise, you know, may have, it may stop the process at the end of the transaction. Absolutely. And have you have you seen from a CFO's perspective, have you seen or or uh, perceived a change in the expectations that maybe the chief executive is expecting from the CFO? Yeah, I think um, you know, sitting in the CFO's chair is uh, can be somewhat difficult just because we're often the last, organization to touch something um, and you know whether it be you know rolling up numbers or drawing insights or um, you know being brought into conversations um, kind of last minute that it would have been helpful to have a little bit of visibility to uh, earlier on um, and so when timetables get compressed we're we're typically the the ones that have to be agile and complete what is needed uh, quickly. The I, I think the other thing is too is you know because there is so much uh, data and information out there, um, there is a constant push for you know bigger insights and it's you know true insights that are disruptive and and just eye catching. It's really about five percent of the time and you know, the broader uh, chance or, or more likely what you're going to run into is either I know the answer and the answer is not that interesting, but here's the answer you asked for. Um, or, you know, we don't have the data to give you an answer to that today. Um, and here's what the path is that we would need to go down in order to get that information. And so that becomes a little bit complicated um, I think the other thing is too, is the CFO, you know, much like uh, legal being involved in uh, keying in on the facts. So you got to start with the fact-based message on everything you do, yep. but then tailoring those facts to uh, a myriad of audiences. Because we have to talk to advanced uh, ed, uh, investors. We have to talk to, um, oftentimes regulatory bodies. We have to talk to potential clients. Um, in some cases, we're talking to the employee base, all about the same set of facts, but the way that those facts are presented become critical. And I think that's uh, a highly complicated complicated task these days. Yeah, absolutely. What I've seen uh, is that the CFO, uh, the CFO function has become more visible in, in recent years and, um, and what I mean by that is, you know, being able to present above and beyond the numbers and being able to articulate the strategy of the organization, 
um, in a way that sort of is, is brought through the lens, I would say, arguably a, a different level of credibility or a different angle of credibility, maybe is a better way to put it, um, to whether that be potential investors or, you know, at an all hands meeting the company or even, you know, in board meetings, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting change from, um, you know, maybe more traditionally being kind of a, just a, a really good accountant who understands the financials to being a, a really strategic advisor who understands the business and the financials, right? Yeah, and I think that's uh, similar to the legal office. I think the legal yeah. profession has become much more a strategic advisor too. I mean, when you go down the list of the, the things where we are very similar, we both have large number of internal clients. We both are sources of truth and um, you know uh, important levers for the company. We're business advisors, we're risk mitigators. And so I think we're all kind of going through this uh, change. Uh, and I think it's a good thing. It's it's great to be invited into these conversations because, you know, me processing the debit and credit is, you know, great, but it's much more important that we understand, you know, where the company is trying to go and, and how can we help the company get there. So if there were one thing that you wish that your legal counterparts understood about your role and some of the challenges, what would that be? Maybe it doesn't have to be one thing. It could be, you know, a handful of things. I, you know, I think uh, this kind of goes back to the question you had before about what are the, you know, some of the um, areas where lawyers that I've worked with in the past could improve. You know, um, there, I've worked in the past with some, um, uh, counterparts in the legal department that they'll get to an answer on something. And so you'll ask for a question and they'll get to an answer on something and they'll say, but I really need to go check this regulation over here, or then I need to check this over here. And so you start getting into, you know, these sub loop conversations where you can't actually take a step forward because there's this feeling that you haven't exhausted everything. It's a little bit like the, is the answer good enough at this point? And so what I typically um, look for uh, from a legal partner is, you know, counsel me on um, what is a business risk that I'm accepting by mo going forward. Um, and, and I think both legal and finance sometimes get these, you know, impressions that we're the no people in the organization. Um, and sometimes that can be the way we present information. I think it's much more for us to present, here's the facts, here's what happens if you do this. And I'm not saying don't do it unless it's illegal, but you know, here's, here's the facts and this is a risk that you're closing over if you choose this thing. Um, and I think that helps us navigate to a path of moving forward faster. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I knew I, I know that we get, we have to get to it. Uh, let's talk about the macroeconomic environment for a little bit. I'd I'd love to to get your uh, your view of the crystal ball. What uh, what are we in for next? Um, how are you thinking about the macroeconomic environment, and how are you working with the legal team to uh, you know put your organization in the best position to 
navigate the quasi turbulent waters that we've been in and 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 are going to be in for some time. Yeah, I think the hardest thing that I I hear from counterparts um, across you know various businesses is that it's difficult to be in a sideways market. And I think everybody is trying to sit in a place where um, do I hold hold my breath and and hope that you know I'm not going to drown in the next you know um, three months or six months or whatever the time period is is or you know is this a time where you know this is a high water table and I really need to you know hit the ground running. Um, so I think people are really struggling that what do you do in a, in a sideways market? Um, and for me, you know, I, I think uh, it's most important to really look at what are your permanent layers of cost in your business? Um, and how do I, you know, prevent moving those? I think um, let's say that you're a company that you're going down the cost reduction path you know, oftentimes people look at, you know, vendor lists and say, oh, we'll go cancel all these vendor relationships because we don't really use them. Um, but if you haven't looked at the contract, you know, it may not actually save you money um, if you've got an early termination penalty or, or uh, the effect of terminating the agreement doesn't actually lower cost. Um, so I spend a lot more time thinking about, you um, how do I not grow my cost base? How do I be more flexible with my existing cost base? And um, taking advantages of things like, you know, there's been conversation about, you know, um, high turnover and the great realization and, and people realizing that, that maybe they want to go work or, or be independent. And if you can take a seat from somebody that has left the company and then be more flexible in what you do with those dollars, um, I think you can take advantage of an environment that is a little bit uncertain because now you've got flexibility and you can scale up and scale down faster. The legal function is obviously a service unit, right? And I think the finance function is, and you know, we can talk about aspects, and I think we've already touched on aspects of uh, the finance function and the legal function being control uh, controls. Um, but as a support function, how do you go about directing your team to support uh, the other the other parts of the business? Um, I think the the biggest thing is understanding um, what the ultimate objective is, uh, and not just being order takers. Um, a lot of times, somebody will come. Uh, within the organization and say, or just ask a random question, you know, how much does this cost? Well, I can answer how much that costs, but what are we trying to accomplish? Um, and if we can get to the root cause of what the thesis or the hypothesis or what the initiative is, um, then I can answer exactly how much something costs, but then also give the five other data points or the five other elements that are relevant to that. Um, I think the other thing is too, especially in a capacity constrained environment, because most legal and finance functions are capacity constrained just because we're seen as uh, GNA overhead. 
is being very clear about, um, I can do this, I can't do this um, from a certain time frame. And if you want me to do this, then I need to prioritize it over that. Are you okay with that change in the timeline? Um, and by starting with those open, honest conversations, I think you get to a better place. Yeah, I think one of the things that really resonated with me that you said there was, I can I could give you the answer to your question, but what else is going on? That natural inquisitiveness, I think, is really important, particularly for support functions that have, you know, that that do have a relatively discrete skill set like finance, like legal, um, where it's more about figuring out the problem that's trying to be solved, I guess, with the answer to that question and and continuing to press a little further. It's it happens all the time in legal, right? People will come up and be like, hey, can I do X, Y, and Z? It's like, well, yeah, sure you can. Or do you approve this language? And then all of a sudden that language is in 15 different contracts for 15 different types of transactions. And it is, you know, it, it's just sort of run away, um, you know, and, and the actual thing that prompted that question still continues to be a problem throughout the organization. So, uh, Alyssa, maybe maybe we jump yep. over to you here for a minute. Sounds good. Um, all right. So the first one is, how do I build a strong relationship with the CFO at my company as a new GC? So how do I start off on the right foot? Um, I think it's uh, really just open and honest communication. Um, one of the first things I did when I joined MBO was I shared my weaknesses first. Um, and by sharing where I'm weak, then somebody knows where I may have a blind spot that they can step into. So like I have a, um, and I, I appreciate GCs that will similarly do that because I think it's very easy to see somebody's strengths. It's very easy for somebody to talk about their strengths. I think it's harder to be open and honest about this is the area where I'm not as strong. That's a great answer. Um, that leads kind of nicely into another question. What is your leadership style? How do you motivate and develop your team? Um, I try, even though I just said I, I try to focus in on we. Um, it's funny when you sit and listen to people that have become parts of the C-suite, you often hear a lot of, well, I had that idea, or that was my idea. Um, and it really doesn't serve any purpose. I think the more that you can promote other people's ideas and celebrate, you know, their level of activity and minimize yours, um, I think it's really important. I spend a lot of time rereading emails, just removing as many eyes from it as possible and accentuating the we's or celebrating the, you know, the fact that somebody else did something. That's great. How about this? How to get buy-in on CLM from my CFO? I think the big thing is, is you've got to show it. Um, there is, I, I will tell you, um, you know, when we went with Link Squares and, and using a CLM, the ability to have truth and factual data at your fingertips quickly is enormous. And, um, you know, it's obviously easiest when there's some sort of um, process going on, uh, like a recapitalization process or a review by a bank or an audit. 
um, where you actually have to have all a review of, of the most important contracts and all the information in there. But I think, you know, going in and, and showing where, you know, dollars spent on a technology can reduce time and people um, really helps sell it to a CFO. So when you think about the, redu- and sorry to jump in, but when you think about sort of the, how do you show reduction in, in your, your people spend, are you thinking about that more in terms of when we hire somebody else later on down the line, they're going to become more efficient and that efficiency is going to drive fewer hires? Or is it, are you coming at it more from the perspective of, all right, maybe we should have hired a paralegal but instead we got CLM. I actually look at it both ways. Typically what I do is I look at technology as, as an, so you could even compare it to um, an automation tool. If I can say this is something that normally takes four hours a week and it's a weekly process and I can automate it and you know it takes 16 hours to automate it to a one minute process, like my payback is less than a month. That's, you know, that becomes a no brainer. So I don't think you have to look at it from a, um, a new position, old position perspective. It's really, what is the time that this frees up? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's super helpful. Eric, it was awesome talking with you. And uh, I think we, we're going to have to do another one of these. We should dig into some of this stuff a little bit more. Maybe next time we do it, maybe we go on the road, we come down to uh, come down to Dallas. Then we can have some barbecue after or something like that. I've got two or three places we could, we could go visit. That's awesome. Well, Eric, thanks again. And as always, Alyssa, thank you. And uh, if you enjoyed this, please follow us on the, all the socials. Give us a like. And we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone.